Are we all living in a simulation? If you were to ask the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard this question, his answer would be a definitive yes. Although what he means by simulation and what you mean by simulation might be two very different things. Which is funny, considering the most influential example of a simulation was directly inspired by Baudrillard's 1981 work Simulation and Simulacra. This is the book that we see Neo hiding the computer disks he sells in the first Matrix in, and it's the one book that the Wachowski siblings made required reading for everyone on the crew of the Matrix movies. But despite this famous example of the mainstream idea of the simulation being directly inspired by Baudrillard's work, what the French postmodern philosopher means by the term simulation is something much more insidious and much scarier than what we find in the Matrix movies. In this episode we're going to be exploring what Baudrillard means by this term simulation and that why Baudrillard thinks that we are already walled inside a simulation permanently cut off from reality. This Baudrillardian idea of simulation is to my mind one of the most hauntingly prescient philosophical ideas you'll ever come across. More relevant and scary than either 1984 or Brave New World. Simulation and simulacra is the dystopia of our present. A dystopia that is so all-encompassing and yet impossibly hard to grasp that we have walked blindly into it. It's the most accurate diagnosis of the slope we find ourselves free-falling down with our culture's departure from modernity into the unreal simulation that is the postmodern condition. After rewatching the Matrix movies a couple of months ago, I thought it might be a nice idea to have a dive into Jean Baudrillard's iconic work Simulation and Simulacra. It's a small book, but dear lord, it is it is not an easy book. It reminds me of reading Camus' Myth of Sisyphus or Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil for the first time. I had that same sense that 90% of the book was going over my head, but the 10% that was seeping in was really blowing my mind, was, was filling me with excitement and was changing the way that I look at the world. What Baudrillard is saying ties in with my obsession in the past year with people like Jamie Wheel, Tristan Harris and above all Daniel Schmachtenberger. I fully believe that if Simulation and Simulacra had been written as a novel it would be spoken about with 1984 and Brave New World. I suppose in a bastardised form it still is with the Matrix movies but yeah it, it's not really and it probably wouldn't have been able to because the thing is like the, this book is really hard to pin down and I found it really difficult to kind of get into the, the juice of it and to figure out what's going on. When I sat down to make the video I thought I'd start with three key terms in the book simulation, simulacra and hyperreality. So I started with the term simulation and tried to define what the word meant and I immediately found myself in the weeds. This is the first major difference between Baudrillard's book and the Matrix movie. The idea of the simulation is really easy to define in the Matrix movies. The simulation is the technological virtual reality world that we are all plugged into. It's Descartes' epistemological demon. In the language of Baudrillard, the Matrix is dealing with the problem of illusion, not the problem of simulation. You have the virtual reality that is the Matrix which seems real, and then you have the actual reality of Zion. The Matrix is an illusion. The red pill takes you out of the illusion and into reality. It's a neat, heroic arc, but that's not what Baudrillard is talking about. That's Descartes' idea of the dream and how do I know that I'm sitting beside a fire when I could be in my bed dreaming that I am. It's a question of illusion. Baudrillard's simulation is much more insidious and terrifying. Because of Baudrillard's simulation, there is no Zion. That's the whole point. There's no way out of the simulation. It's a straitjacket. It's a prison that we are locked into. And that's why it's so terrifying. Baudrillard tells us that the binary opposition between illusion and reality implodes with the entry into the postmodern age. 
There's no longer any distinction between illusion and reality. The reality is no longer reachable, and thus neither reality nor illusion have any meaning anymore. We are, to use Baudrillard's semiotic terminology, stranded in a world without reference. We live in a sea of signs that are disconnected from any real thing. The real is decaying, falling to pieces in our world of simulation. It has become what Baudrillard calls the desert of the real. Now on the face of it, this may sound like everything that commentators warn about with postmodernism. It's everything that's scary about it, the, the relativism and the scepticism of knowledge and truth and everything we hold sacred in the West. But it's a complete mistake to look at it that way. What this caricature of postmodernism misses, and Baudrillard is one of the classical postmodernists, is that the postmodern philosophers aren't puppet masters of this new postmodern reality. They're the Cassandras. They're quite often the only ones willing to stare into the face of what was coming. The analytic philosophers were busy trying to catch up with science and with the humble quest of making their discipline rigorous. A lot of these French philosophers, however, were more concerned with the present day and with the activity of philosophy and the course of history. They were the philosophers of the day. That's part of the reason a lot of them became celebrities, because what they had to say was relevant to the world that they lived in at that time. And so with Baudrillard, I hope we get an insight into the other lens of looking at the postmodernists. Not as spectres and shadows of everything that is wrong with the world as many see them, but as diagnosticians who were diagnosing the great shift that was occurring in culture. Now obviously, they weren't all objective, unbiased individuals sitting on the sidelines. Foucault certainly was someone who threw his weight to one side of the movement and acted as a catalyst to bring about the change he believed should come. But to say that Foucault or Derrida or the other postmodernists created the world is they get caught up in the fallacy of mistaking the reflections of the stars in the pond for the night sky. Or in the language of Baudrillard, it's to attribute to individuals what is properly a function of the simulation. The big question then is what exactly does Baudrillard mean by simulation? As it turns out, it isn't such an easy question to answer. At first, I thought it was just my inexperience with Baudrillard that kept me from understanding, but after scouring four or five different books on Baudrillard and reading through a lot of articles online, it seems that the struggle to understand the idea of simulation is not just a personal quirk, but a ubiquitous struggle. None of the books I went through came up with a satisfactory definition of the term. They left the term float around without pinning it down. The closest I came to a definition was the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's page on Baudrillard, where Douglas Kellner defines Baudrillard's simulation as the cultural modes of representation that simulate reality, as in television, computer cyberspace, and virtual reality. This seems quite apt as a definition, except for the fact that it really doesn't work. When you think about it, this is just a slightly expanded definition of the Matrix's version of simulation. It's the virtual reality of the Matrix and its antecedents, TV and computers that absorb our life force. This is a really important aspect of simulation and one we'll be digging into deeper in future episodes, but it doesn't explain how Baudrillard can justify saying that the entire world is a simulation, that we are all living in a simulation. It just doesn't make sense. But despite Kellner's attempt being wide of the mark, I do appreciate the attempt at nailing the term down and thought I would try and add to the quest somewhat, although realistically this video will probably just muddy the waters a bit more. One of the books I studied was by a scholar called Rex Butler, who talks about the inherent difficulties in talking about the term simulation. In all of this, there is raised the difficulty of speaking of simulation, a difficulty that Baudrillard slowly realises as his work progresses. Simulation is difficult to talk about not simply because it is not real, but more profoundly because it is a total process. There is nothing outside of it. The analyst of simulation, therefore, is subject to the very rule he or she analyzes. If the fundamental law of simulation is that we cannot come too close to the object represented, this is also true of the analyst's attempts to represent simulation itself. 
The question is thus raised, if there is nothing outside of simulation and nothing before it, how are we to think it at all? So if everything in this episode seems muddy and unclear to you, it is only partly to do with my inadequacy. It also explains why simulation and simulacra will never be so easy to summarise that it can stand beside 1984 or Brave New World. Its watered-down version in the Matrix is about the best we are going to get at a mainstream level. All of this being said, the rest of the episode will be an attempt to demystify this idea of simulation, at least to some degree. After reading Butler, it seems that, like the first rule of Fight Club, the first rule of the simulation is you do not talk about the simulation. Baudrillard says that the moment you believe that you're in a state of simulation, you're no longer there. The misunderstanding here is the conversion of a theory like mine into a reference, whereas there should never be any references. He's using reference here in the semiotic sense as being the referent, i.e. the thing in reality that the sign refers to. This is the first key aspect of Baudrillard's simulation. It is first and foremost a hypothesis. As Butler points out, the simulation is not an empirical phenomenon, something that actually happens. Baudrillard is very well aware of the paradox that, insofar as the simulation he is describing exists, it makes any way of verifying it impossible. It means that the very real which we say is lost in simulation, and against which we compare it, is now only conceivable in simulated form. Indeed, we might even say that insofar as we can speak of simulation at all, it has not yet occurred. That simulation is proved in its absence. Simulation is not real then, but a kind of hypothesis. So I hope you're beginning to get an idea as to why this topic has been wrecking my head, and also why I find it so fascinating. It's both incredibly dense and difficult to understand, but at the same time, it's one of the most fascinating ideas I've come across in years. So having established that anything we say about the topic is going to be inadequate, and blundering past Wittgenstein's injunction that what we cannot speak of we must pass over in silence, let's try to say a little more about simulation. Another important clue in attempting to understand simulation is the idea that simulation attempts to resemble the real, to realise it, to bring out what is only implicit and to make it explicit. But at a certain point in its progress, it draws too close to the original, and further increases in perfection, instead of bringing the system closer to the original, only drive it further away. The system begins to reverse upon itself, gives rise to the opposite effects from those intended. So that all sounds very interesting, but what does it actually mean? One example that Baudrillard uses in the book is the idea of the hypermarket, and this rather mundane example is a good way of understanding this point. So hypermarket is a common term in France for a supermarket. So your Tesco, your Walmart, or for those of you in Ireland, your Dunn stores. And what is a supermarket? It's, it's an attempt to perfect the idea of a market. Originally, a market was a place where you went and you would get your meat off this person, you get your bread off that person, you get your candles off the person over there. As Baudrillard puts it, the traditional market was the place where the city and the country came to rub elbows. But along comes the supermarket and attempts to perfectly realise this idea of a market. It brings all these things together under one roof. The vegetables are here and the meat is there and the candlesticks are over there. But as Butler puts it, at a certain point in its progress, it draws too close to the original. And instead of bringing the system closer to the original, it only drives it further away. This makes perfect sense in the supermarket example because supermarkets, while theoretically closer to the perfection of the market, couldn't be further from the reality. There's something soul-destroying about a supermarket. You go in and under these fluorescent lights you pick out your groceries and now you don't even have to talk to anyone. You just go up to the machine, you touch your phone and you're out. But it's not even that, it's the systematization of it all. It's the machine likeness of it all. You go in, another dot in the crowd and you pick out some items from their perfectly organized ranks. In your wake, the ranks are replenished so the machine is in a constant state of homogenizing itself. 
you, the customer, proceed in an ordered linear fashion around a supermarket, you come to the till and you proceed out in your car and home. It's not just a supermarket either. Baudrillard writes that the hypermarket cannot be separated from the highways that surround and feed it, from the parking lots blanketed in automobiles, from the computer terminal, further still in concentric circles from the whole town as the total functional screen of activities. Compare all this with going to the market where there's a wholesome buzz. There's people interacting, there's the people at the stalls, there's someone busking over there in the corner. There's limited stock and humans you have to overcome to get access to that stock. I find there's something nourishing about going to the market. I feel good after it. I would never go to a supermarket for a walk around, but a market? Absolutely. There's something wholesome about the market that is completely missing in the hypermarket. It's lost its soul in its attempt to perfect the idea of the market. This reaching for the perfection of the market, for the ultimate form of it, creates a homogenized market experience across the country and across the world. The market becomes something hyper-real in this approach to perfection, and somewhere along the lines it loses its soul. There's more than enough lessons there to consider as far as human perfection goes as well. Perhaps we are better off being thwarted by the haphazard chaos of our instincts. Maybe a stoic world would become as soulless as a hypermarket. Obviously this is a mundane example, but to try and bridge between this example of the hypermarket and the globalised, all-encompassing, truth-destroying idea of the simulation, let's look at Baudrillard's example from ethnology. So in 1971, the Philippine government decided to return a few dozen Tassaday tribespeople to the depths of the forest they had recently been discovered in. The Tassaday had lived there for eight centuries with no contact with the outside world, but upon contact with this world they were, as Baudrillard puts it, disintegrating immediately upon contact, like mummies in the open air. And so, at the recommendation of the anthropologists, the government decided to return the tribespeople to virgin forest, beyond the reach of colonizers, tourists and ethnologists. Baudrillard's analysis of this event is brilliant. As with everything else, it's difficult to grasp, but there's something incredibly powerful in it. He says that, in order for ethnology to live, its object must die. In the process of studying the tribes, the ethnologists were causing them to decay. But this returning of the tribespeople to the virgin forest is precisely what is so peculiar. The science sacrifices these tribespeople in order to preserve its reality principle. The Tassidae are frozen in their natural element. They have become posthumous, frozen, cryogenized, sterilized, protected to death. They have become referential simulacra, and science itself has become pure simulation. These tribespeople become the model of simulation, of all the possible tribespeople from the times before ethnology. What Baudrillard is getting at here captures the difficult-to-grasp essence of simulation. Earlier he writes about how, with simulation, the real is no longer what it was. We see the implosion of the real, the collapse of the difference between illusion and reality. Now there is no illusion or reality, there is only simulation. Looking at the case of the Tassaday tribespeople in this light, we see the attempt to get back to reality, to restore the Tassaday to their true form in a virgin forest. It's this idea of what is natural, this reality principle. But in trying to grasp for that real, we are only simulating it. When you hear people arguing about what our ancestors ate, how our ancestors lived, and why you should live that way now, it's not getting back to the way our Paleolithic ancestors lived. It's just another simulation like the Tassaday. These are relatively mundane examples of Baudrillard's simulation, but you can begin to see what he means by saying that everything has become a simulation, that the simulation has become all-encompassing. This isn't just a question of the internet or of the media, it's everything. When we talk about internet and technology and how they've warped our lives, the simulation is easy to understand. The Matrix is an easy thing to understand because we look at our non-virtual lives and see something that is less warped. 
But Baudrillard's point that I have no doubt butchered is that the simulation is much more insidious and has penetrated far deeper into our lives. We now live in an entirely simulated world. What exactly this means, I'm still wrestling with, and I'm fully confident that anyone who's studied Baudrillard deeply would probably cringe at my indelicate attempt to capture what he's talking about. But in future episodes, I want to circle this work of Baudrillard more, because I genuinely feel that there's something important in it, and something that might be imperative to understanding the mess that we find ourselves in, in the third decade of the 21st century. In future episodes, we're going to look at Baudrillard's criticisms of the Matrix movies, and we're going to do a more detailed breakdown of simulation and simulacra, and we're also going to talk about his idea of hyperreality, and look at the prescience of Baudrillard's work for our world today. For now, that's everything for today's episode of The Living Philosophy. If you've enjoyed it, you might like to give the video a thumbs up down below, and if you loved it, and you love The Living Philosophy, then why not head over to Patreon, where you can support the channel, get early access to scripts and videos, and where you can get your name eternalised in the credits of all future videos. As ever, if you have any thoughts, insights, or feedback, I'd love to hear from you down in the comments, otherwise I shall see you next time. Thank you for watching.